Conscient Podcast, episode 88. Now, this is a special edition of the Conscient Podcast. You're going to hear two recordings that I did with my father-in-law, the poet and educator Robin Matthews. Now, I'm not going to read his extensive biography, but I put some links in the episode notes for you to learn more about his distinguished career as a writer and activist. So, the first recording is from just a few days ago in Vancouver, where I asked him to help me understand the origins of the term radical, but also uh, to his thoughts about the notion of radical listening, which you might recall is the theme of this third season. And the other recording is from 17 years ago in 2004, when I had a series of conversations with Robin about uh, political poetry, the role of the artist in society, and many other topics. So I thought I'd bring these two conversations together in this episode. And you'll also hear him read three of his poems. The first is called At the Café Lenin, from his Think Freedom book of poetry published in 2004 by Northland Publications. The second is The Lady from Iraq, written in 1991. And the third that you'll hear is from this year called Unmarked Graves. I want to thank Robin for sharing his deep knowledge of arts and culture and his passion for poetry and literature. I also want to thank him for being a generous and supportive father-in-law to me and a loving grandfather to our children. I want to take advantage of Robin's deep knowledge of uh, many uh, terms and movements, social movements, and look at the term radical, because I've been using it this season uh, in my, um, as part of the theme of the third season called uh, Radical, around the notion of radical listening. So I want to start, Robin, by uh, just uh, exploring that term, radical. What does it mean? Where does it come from? And, and how do you think uh, it, it is used most commonly and, and how it, it, it might be interpreted? Well, I suppose etymologically, radical uh, comes from the concept of root, um, radishes and <laughs> other root plants. Uh, in social and political life, it refers to opposition, and it can be right or left, but usually radicalism Im implies in the Western world uh, leftward, uh, in a sense, basic demand for a larger population than a ruling class and so on. And, and it implies that they're challenging, you're challenging the status quo. Well, yes, if it's, if it's, uh, if it's um, opposed to the ruling class by definition, then it's opposed to the ruling class in action. So radicalism is um, always um, confronting power even when radicalism finds itself on the right, it's still usually confronting power. Well, we'll start with the first um, uh, excerpt from our, our previous conversations around political poetry. We'll listen to that now. Well, the tradition in Canada is a grand and noble one, both in French and English. In On the English side, the 
probably the greatest 19th century Canadian poet, Archibald Lampman, was a socialist poet and declared he was that. Um, that was a part of a developing tradition that F.R. Scott, you know, the great constitutional lawyer and theorist, who was also a very, very fine poet and a political poet in no uncertain terms, which extends into Dorothy Livesey and Milton Acorn and people I came to know, of course. And um, it seemed to me always that to pretend that the political sphere was not something that you lived and breathed and walked in was to lie about life. Political poetry is not something that you only do and it's not something that one absolutely has to do. But to have a country where there are very few political poets is to have a country that is somehow damaged. Because if poetry arises from the passions of the person involved with life, then the passions of politics have to be involved too. And so it seems to me that the, the important Canadian poets have always been aware of the political sphere and taken part in it. Even Norman Bethune, the great Canadian doctor hero of the Spanish Civil War and, and China, was an extremely fine poet, and his poetry was political At the poetry. Café Lenin. We'll meet at the Café Lenin when the midnight hour has tolled. We'll drink to the hopes the past held dear on a planet grown tragically old. We'll mourn the loss of the ozone, the oceans depleted of fish. We'll remember the songs that were sung by the frogs. We'll remember and wonder and wish. We'll sit in the Café Lenin with its decor of scarlet and black. Mourning the millions gone down to their graves so the markets can stay on track. We'll drink to the men and the women who fight for the good and the just and are torn from hope and human love by imperial greed and lust. We'll praise all revolutions, no matter how poor or small, where the weak and the tortured fight to break free of capital's murdering thrall. We'll meet at the Café Lenin in the dark and dead of our night. We'll remember, dream, and then plan afresh for a new day filled with light. So, Robin, now that we've heard a little bit your thought around political poetry, what are your, some of your thoughts on the role of art in and around politics and uh, social issues like the one we're living now? I mean, we're uh, today's November twenty. 25th uh, in 2021 we're in Vancouver we're in the middle of a of a uh, series of rains that are creating all kinds of havoc how, how does a, how do how do artists deal with those kinds of issues and and do they need to be more radical in terms of addressing them well I don't know what um, I don't know what one would think of as radical art in that context um, certainly um, the protest art which I suppose is radical, and um, I suppose we, in the 
21st century, we start with um, Picasso's Guernica, and um, the artists, in a sense, lonely protest against overwhelming power, um, and very often the radicalism of artistic protest takes its gains its power after the event. Uh, certainly, in uh, the f Paris emute um, and struggles in the late 1960s, art was absolutely a um, part of the protest and struggle. And there was, in fact, the um, revolutionary studio, or whatever you call it, um, of art students producing posters every day, posting them all over France in the night. The police came along at 4 a.m. and tore down um, whatever ones they could. But this was a genuine uh, role of the artists in a major protest movement, day by day, hour by hour. That isn't the case in most um, of artistic uh, what, what you call it, protest, revolution, action, struggle. And you were there. <laughs> and I was there, yes. <laughs> Taking them off the wall, and they're now in the Esther and Robin Matthews Paris Poster Collection at Simon Fraser University, if anyone, for historical reasons, wants to study some of them. The lady in the high-class store backs the madmen on the hill. She blesses them and thinks it right that they should kill and kill because the world, she says, is bad and good. Our leaders stand up for the right. The bad must feel our heavy wrath falling on them in the night. The lady in the high-class store doesn't wish her neighbor ill, doesn't have a racist hate, doesn't rifle from the till. Like you and me, she starts her day with coffee by her lawn-side view, sews for her daughter, loves her son, fears the different and the new. She talks about our U.S. friends. She says they need to go to war. As friends, we ought to follow them. We can't do less, she thinks, or more. She's built herself a fortress mind. She wanders in a burning wood where ad men tell her what is true. The TV tells her what is good. She doesn't know her choice has been packaged somewhere far away. When she sees there's throwing stones, she wants to throw some of her own. Her leaders know that. They depend that she'll continue being she. They build their banal madness on her firm predictability. I think the artist's role in society can be seen in about three different ways. The artist, first of all, wants to make the credible work of art. And if the artist is a painter of daffodils, then the artist should paint daffodils all of his or her life. Uh, one cannot say an artist should be this or that, but in the large picture, it seems to me, the artist's role in the society is to be a part of the society, to be an interpreter of the society, 
And I think <clears throat> I think um, a statement by Fidel Castro is apt here because when shortly after the revolution, Fidel had a meeting with with all the artists in Cuba, and he said, "You can paint anything you want. You can paint abstract. You can paint representationally. You can paint flowers. You can paint ships. You can paint soldiers. You can paint anything you want." but you cannot paint against the revolution. If you paint against the revolution, we will stop you. And I think that showed enormous breadth. He didn't say social realism is workers in factories paint that. You can paint anything you want. But And some people in Canada will say, oh, well, of course, that's very restrictive, and of course, he is um, censoring painters. But Canada says you can paint anything you want as long as you don't paint against capitalism. And exactly in the same way that um, Fidel said about uh, the revolution. And if you paint actively against capitalism, you disappear out of the galleries in Canada. Uh, do you, can you think of any other examples of, of, of radicalism that has... I mean, the term itself is a bit used now. People use it for all kinds of different ways. And uh, but I'm, I'm using it in the sense of, of listening to things differently, you know, not taking your usual uh, assumptions, but, but listening differently. How, how, is the, how is the term radical useful for us today? Well, I don't know. Um, I don't know how many people in Canada would immediately understand what radical listening is because it would occur to me that the listener would have to be sensitized beforehand in order to listen radically. So so that the radical listening is a secondary function of becoming radicalized in a political uh, matter or political level. Radical listening is at one level, isn't it? One listens in repose. One listens in usually undefended state of mind. And so radical listening would be post-action listening or preparatory to action, uh, as when a radical group meets with radical leaders and listens and then moves into action. It doesn't do to dictate about the artist, because the artists are as various as it is possible to be. And a great many artists can only have their being in withdrawal and insularity, retreat and silence. And so to call upon them to be social activists is, would be wounding and maybe destructive. But in the large picture, of the artist in the society, even the artist that I have described, must in himself or herself recognize that to be artist is a special function and a special blessing. And in response to it, the artist must take responsibility for the nature of the society in which he or she lives. And that's asking a great deal, but I don't think it's asking too much. Well, maybe talk to us a bit about your work as a poet. 
because you've written all kinds of poems about all kinds of issues. Um, how, do, how do you feel that the role of poetry is in, say, political action or social change? I think poetry can't be nailed down as having a purposeful, generally recognized role at any particular time. And so I think that uh, the radical poet um, feeds into the larger social order. I think perhaps a Milton Acorn, um, uh, who was uh, named the People's Poet and given a special award by the artistic community, really, as the People's Poet, and he was alerting and alarming and awakening and discussing into a milieu which he had effect upon. I'm not sure, I don't know enough about the history um, to know of poets who in fact led radical, physical, uh, social movements. But your own work is in poetry is is a type of political poetry. Well, a, a large portion of my work is political poetry, that's right. Political poetry is very often argumentative poetry, persuasive poetry, but that, that we have to look at that again because there's political poetry that is visibly political poetry, but a great deal of the poetry which claims not to be political poetry is in fact political poetry because it gives total assent to the present ruling order. And when you give total assent to the present ruling order, you are in fact taking a political position. What they mean when they say they don't want to see political poetry is they don't want to see poetry which challenges the established order of power. It offends the established order of power. The established order of power is the giver of gifts. The giver of gifts are situated in arts councils and universities, and they are less likely to give gifts to people who offend the established order of power. So a lot of artists who want a very quiet life and they want gentle assistance through this very quiet life do not want to challenge the established order of power. So along comes an artist or a poet who does so, and they say, that's political poetry, that's political painting, we don't want that, that isn't art, that is propaganda. Quite unaware that they too are creating propaganda, but propaganda for established power, not against established power. But just to end, um, I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on um, because I, I'm this podcast is about art and the ecological crisis. What I'm seeing now is that artists are and, and there's a, been a parallel made by Seth Klein here in Vancouver about the effort, the amount of effort that was required to win the Second World War to, and and the amount of change that's required for the the climate emergency, the one we're going through now. Uh, do you have any thoughts on 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 that? The, the the how how can we mobilize people to realize that um, the the world needs to change its ways in in fundamental ways? Uh, and I think arts and culture play an important role because they touch our hearts as well as our minds. But yeah, I would think so, and I would think that uh, painting 
um, would be a, no pun intended, eye-opener, and also theatre. There's every reason to have plays, theatrical performances, that operate within the context of environmental threat without necessarily being announced as the focus of the play to bring audiences into a full consciousness through art of conditions they don't immediately recognize. So I think the artist is someone who's deeply curious about what the world means. And that has to include what he or she themselves mean. And I think the artist is more uh, funneled in that direction than others. I had a friend visiting me, um, and uh, we were looking at a painting or two that I had done, and I said to him, but Jean, we are all artists. And he said, no, Robin, we are not all artists. And I thought that was very amusing because I just took it for granted that people didn't do artistic things because they didn't feel like it, they didn't have time, they didn't want to, but of course if they set their minds to, they would. And he was saying, no, they wouldn't because they don't know how to set their minds to it. And I think that's the the magic and the excitement and the wonder of artists and being among artists and knowing artists is that they have, they're constantly refining the skill lets them tell themselves about the world around them. And so in doing that, when they are greatly successful, as, say, Dorothy Livesey is in poetry, and Milton Acorn in poetry, and Jack Shadbolt in his painting, and Joe Plaskett in his painting, when they're successful, others step into that world through their, through the artist's ability. The others step through that window into the wonder of what the artist does and is in society. And that seems to me something you have to grant as real. When you look at the fecundity of of some of our artists, you stand back in wonder and delight at these made things. These, And that's the other thing I think that every artist knows. The making of something that was never that existed before and wouldn't have existed without that person, that's a magic. You think, wow, did I do that? Yes, I did. Most recently, I wrote a poem which is in a sense radical and in a sense not, about uh, called Unmarked Graves, about the indigenous people and the, the people, in fact, who are not recorded. And it was considered political by readers, taken up. Someone, in fact, phoned me and told me they had stolen it, and they translated it and had it sent to uh, Central America to be broadcast in Central America. Well, that's a political poem, obviously, and I chuckled to myself and thought, Central America knows a little bit about unmarked graves. So the poem written in Vancouver about the indigenous people of Canada and British Columbia rang a bell in Honduras. Unmarked Graves Hearing voices rising from unmarked graves 
seeing forms as though of bodies bound in ill-fitting cerements, moving away from habitations, moving silently through unbroken forest as if along worn trails, hearing voices, murmuring unintelligible phrases, and seeing the shapes of bodies, or what were once bodies, bound in ill-fitting cerements, moving silently through unbroken forest, moving where there is no pathway, their voices rising from unmarked graves echo in the empty passageways of memory. When they speak, as if they are speaking to one another, their voices rising from unmarked graves are not wise and rounded in certain voices, as the voices of the dead should be, voices that rise from completed lives. They are uncertain voices, echoing in the empty passageways of memory. No history can restore them. No intention can give them wholeness back, as if their destiny is barely to be heard or seen except as voices rising from unmarked graves, except as shadows bound in ill-fitting cerements moving through unbroken forest, having been given release to utter cries of forlorn hope, cries that come to the ears as the cries of those lost in the empty passageways of memory, as cries uttered in sadness and abandonment, rising from the unmarked graves of those not known or remembered, but walking on the ghostly pathways of a past erased and only found again in palsied memory and in dream. Well, thank you, Robin. We'll uh, leave it there for now because we'll have uh, heard you from a few years ago. And uh, I appreciate your insights on, on the term radical and also the context in which it, it can be used. You know, uh, I, I appreciate Yes, uh, right-wing governments call left-wing protesters radical and left-wing governments called right-wing protesters radical. So it's a, it's a movable feast as a term, but it always rings a bell. It also always means. So it's not, it's not a contradictory term. It's a um, situational term, I would think.